Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. If uh, you're visiting with us and I haven't had a chance to say hello or introduce myself, my name is Jason. I have honor being lead pastor here, serving with uh, five other men as elders of the church. Ken is one of those other men, and so uh, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, we are in a, a sermon series working through the book of Revelation. So if you're visiting with us here today, you're jumping in right in the middle. We're going to be in chapter 6. If you want to go ahead and turn there uh, in your Bible and get ready. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we put black cardback Bibles under the seats around you. Um, those are there for you. If you don't own a Bible, that's a free gift to you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word, uh, so please snag one of those. So let me, uh, let me start off with uh, just some recap, review, timeline, figure out where we're at in terms of the sermon series, and then we'll get, we'll get into chapter 6. So today we're going to enter into the section that begins with the seven seals coming from the scroll being presented last week from the Father who sits on the throne to the only one worthy in heaven to open it, the Son, the Lamb who was slain. And so today we're going to see those seals broken and we're going to talk about what those uh, reflect about God's plan. And so to get started though, <clears throat> just a big timeline of, of really human history. And so really the discussion we're talking about is where does human history find its end and the eternal age begin? That's the thing we're longing for and looking forward to, the day where we, we step out of the suffering of the fallen world experience. We lay aside these bodies and we take up our resurrected perfect bodies to eternally exist in the presence of our king. And so uh, we go all the way back to creation. This is Genesis 1, in the beginning God created by speaking. And so this uh, represents the beginning of human history, not the beginning of God, right? Before God created, God was eternally. But this is the beginning of human history. God spoke into existence, creation, a temporal world. Uh, shortly after that, Genesis 3, we have the fall. This is where sin enters. God had told Adam that if you do sin, you rebel against me, you will surely die. And so this is the experience of not just uh, physical death, but spiritual death, a sever in the relationship between God and man. So right after the fall, where do we find Adam? We find Adam and Eve hiding from each other, essentially, hiding their body from each other, hiding from God. This is the beginning of what we would call the shadow of death over human history. That since that moment forward, every one of us has been born into this fallen world under the curse of death. As soon as we are conceived, we're headed towards physical death, right? Uh, but we also are born into a world where there's a spiritual death. Our relationship with God has been severed, and it's reflected oftentimes in our relationships with each other. Uh, we experience severed, broken relationships all throughout our life, and so what we need is redemption. We need, that to be, we need that to be recovered, to be healed, to be restored. And so at just the right time, as Ken, one of our elders, just prayed, God put forth his son. He literally puts on human flesh and comes to dwell among us, and he lives a perfect life, sinless life, perfect life, culminating where? At the cross, the cross, he is crucified. He is punished for what we've done. And he dies on the cross, not an unwilling death, but a willing death for those he loves. And he's buried in the grave. And three days later, he resurrects from the grave. And after a short period of time, he ascends back to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. Then we have the church age begin. This is where we are today, somewhere between here and here. We're longing for this. We're looking forward to this moment when our king returns. And so interestingly enough, 
Uh, the song we just sang, Hosanna, was actually inspired by the Sunday before Jesus goes to the cross. He goes to the cross on a Friday. That Sunday, though, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's, he's greeted spontaneously with worship and adoration of a victorious king. The people lay down their, the palm leaves and their, their clothing on the ground before him. They sing Hosanna, foreshadowing that we as the church might, what, do the same at the return of our king. And so this is what we're looking for, we're longing for. Now, the question arises, the debates arise in what's going on between here and here. How do the seven churches fit in? Where do the seven seals come in? The seven trumpets, the seven bowls. There are certain things that we're looking for that Jesus tells us to be looking for. And so how does that, how does that work? So let me just kind of give you some, some basic parameters on, on the um, understanding of Revelation. Uh, there are four primary views. We've gone over this a couple times. There is a view that's primarily past tense, meaning that so we have after the resurrection in the mid-90s A.D., way back here on the timeline, uh, John is writing down on the island of Patmos what he sees in the Revelation. He writes about things that are about to happen. So, a past, so here we are somewhere down here looking backwards. A past tense view would, would, would assume then everything leading up to the return of Christ was taking place right then. And you can look at events of John's time and see where there could be some potential for that to have happened. So in other words, the seven seals has already happened, seven trumpets, seven bowls has already happened. That's a past tense or a preterist view. You've got a view that's more of a historic view. And the idea is that it's actually an unfolding over time. So the seven churches, we, we finished the seven letters, the seven churches, potentially represented seven church ages between here and here. And so we're somewhere in that uh, representation. Uh, another view is what we call the futurist view, which means that after the seven churches, starting with what we saw last week in Revelation 4, everything is still yet to come. So everybody living today is still looking forward to that. So what happens at the seven seals then is really the beginning of the end of human history. It's the unfolding of the things that must take place before the return of Christ. And so with the unveiling of the scroll, what we begin to get is this climactic expression of things. Now, there's another view that is more symbolic, looking at the imagery of Revelation, the events described, as purely thematic for what must come, okay? And so those are the four different views. Now, let me give you a couple of perspectives on the seven seals. I've already had people coming up this morning asking me to, to unlock the mystery. I can't do that. There's only one who is worthy to unlock the scroll, we talked about him last week. He's the lamb who was slain. Uh, but there are two primary views for those who are looking more futuristic uh, to the seven seals rather than past tense. There are two ways to understand the seven seals. So one is what they call the telescopic view. So you can think of a telescope. So here's what that view would say. I'll do this from your left to right. You have the breaking of one seal second seal, third seal, fourth seal, fifth seal, sixth seal, seventh seal. Within the seventh seal, the telescopic view would say that's where the seven trumpets begin to blow, but they're within the seventh seal. You can kind of feels like a telescope getting bigger, right, as we come left to right. Then within the seventh seal, you have seven trumpets, and within the seven trumpets, you have seven bowls, and it's all pointing towards the same end. Okay, that's the telescopic view. The other view is more of a secular view that what unfolds in the seven, with the seven seals gets repeated with the seven trumpets, then gets repeated again with the seven bowls. 
Now, there are reasons for both of those views. There is a lot of similarity between those unfoldings and primarily the way they end. So you could see a plausible case for either way. They both end with the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl, end with this climactic two things, what's called the storm theophany, which is the presence of God that, that gives way to thunder and lightning. We saw that imagery from the throne last week. In addition to the return of Christ. So if you're coming this way and you think of telescopic view, the seven seals begin to unfold, but within the seventh seal, then you have seven trumpets, and within the seventh trumpet, you have the seven bowls. That works, ending with the storm imagery and the return of Christ. Or if you think of it as secular, you have seven seals, and then you get a reiteration with seven trumpets, and then you get a reiteration with seven bowls, again, ending at the same place. There's a, climax, a, a, a climactic building, if you will, this, within the seven seals. It affects a, a quarter of mankind, as we'll see today. Then with the seven trumpets, a third of mankind. Then with the seven bowls, all of mankind. So either way you unpack it, you can feel this climactic event rising to where God has the attention of everyone at the return of Christ. Okay? So now there's, there's your help to get us started talking through what we're going to go today. All right. Revelation 6, starting in verse 1. Now, now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So let's go ahead and talk through this uh, imagery and where we're going today. So we have the lamb. Last week in chapter 4, we saw the throne room. One sitting on the throne had a scroll, and the scroll was sealed with seven seals, which is what we're opening today. We're seeing opened today. No one was worthy to open it, right, except for the lamb who was slain, so that was given to the lamb. Now he begins, the lamb begins to open the seals, and he's opened the first one here. The lamb has opened the first one. In the throne room last week, we saw around the throne these four living creatures. We talked about the symbolism of those four living creatures, that, that ultimately creation was depicted here in this imagery of the throne room that creation itself is worshiping God and, and expressing uh, worship and praise of God for who he is. And so now the living creatures that we saw last week are involved in the first four seals. So with the first one being open, one of the four living creatures speaks and his voice sounds like thunder, come. And so here's what happens with the first four seals. A living creature speaks, then comes a, a riding horse. The first horse we see here is the white horse, and we'll talk about what he has in just a minute. So just some help here. Um, these four horses, what they could possibly represent, okay? There's some similarities between them. All of them are, event, are, are essentially invited or given permission to come, and what they bring is not a positive experience for mankind, as we're going to see as this unfolds. So some, uh, some interpretive possibilities. Uh, one, that they're simply just symbolic, representing the judgment of God or the power of God touching the earth. 
Think about that if you've ever, if you've been around horses um, or you've ever been around like a, like a, a herd of cattle. When, when heavy animals come running through, you not only see it, you hear it and you feel it. And so with this imagery of this horse coming, riding, you can feel his feet pounding the earth. So one interpretation would be to say this is just simply what it sounds and feels like when, when the majestic glory of God touches the earth in judgment. That you can see it and you can hear it and you can feel it. Another view would be to say that these horses represent um, Satan himself. That Satan is sending these horses. So these are demons coming on his behalf or uh, things that are happening at the unfolding of his call. And so Satan himself is sending uh, the, the horses. And another view, uh, which this view really mingles in with all these anyway, is that these horses simply represent the unfolding of the depravity of man. So let me explain that. At the fall enters the depravity of man, the complete desperate situation of our sin. It's one we can't get out of, depravity. It's desperate. From our perspective, it's hopeless. Every person in this room has tried to quit a sin. And, and, and except for the grace of God and his help and his power in you, you can't do it. So you know what it means to be desperately stuck in sin. Every one of us knows that, whether we admit it or not, right? So the, the idea is that right now here on earth, though, there seems to be some sense of artificial peace, or a sense of how, how in the world have we not ruined this thing yet? We read the headlines, and it seems like there's a lot of volatility in the world, right? But, but there is this assumption, at least by a secular perspective, that by and large, man is good. But we know that's not true, right? So it's, no, it's not our, the goodness and the kindness of our heart that is keeping the wheels on the cart. Something else is happening, right? The sense that God has, has his hand, his sovereign hand, on the earth, and so one view would be then that these horses represent simply God's saying, beginning to remove that from the earth and letting depravity run its course. Now, whether it's initiated by Satan or it's just God removing, no matter what, we're going to see our involvement in these first four seals. All right. One other thing I want to point out is the authority here. So the, <clears throat> so the command comes ultimately from the throne. The creatures are worshiping the one on the throne. And here we have the, the creature speaking. And so the horse is coming under the authority of a sovereign God. So no matter which one of those views you have, whether it's Satan, whether it's simply the depravity of man, or thematic, just evil coming, <clears throat> God is ultimately giving permission. Right? This is similar to what we see in the story of Job. Satan asked God for permission to tempt his servant. Satan claiming what? If you let me have my way with him, he'll deny you. and He'll turn from you. God, what, gives permission, sovereign permission for Satan to do what he's doing. So we see that here as the creature says, come. Now, here's what happens. So I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. Now, we won't have time to get into the fullness of what this uh, imagery is, um, but essentially what, they, what, what has happened has been the release of conquering. Conquer. And to conquer was an idiom. Being sent out to conquer or to come out and conquer and to conquer was, a, was a, an idiom of this culture, meaning a saying, an understanding. So what we're seeing is that with this white horse comes this ambition for mankind to conquer. We've seen small excerpts of this throughout human history with Alexander the Great and others who have, and Hitler himself, right? A man on earth making an attempt to conquer. 
But what we're, what's being described here is an unfolding of a restlessness that, that affects the whole earth, this ambition to conquer. It's not just one man or one nation, but the nation's beginning to rise up one against another. And so man is released to pursue conquering one another. That's the first horse and the first seal. Let's go to the second one, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright, red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. You begin to feel these seals connected to one another, don't you? So you have this ambition, it seems, of the nations to rise up and conquer, and now we see this the sense of peace has been removed. The thing that's holding the wheels on the cart right now seems to be removing itself. And so this rider removes peace from the earth and people begin to slay one another. Now, in one sense, you might say, that's what's happening today all over the place. College campuses, churches, the Middle East, people are slaying one another. But here's what we understand right now. Man slaying man right now is the exception, not the norm, when you look proportionately at the numbers of people on earth. Even though it makes the news, and it's, it's, it's huge, and it's horrible, and it grabs our attention, by and large, we, as a mankind, aren't participating in that. That's the exception. But what's being described here is that that, that now flips and becomes the rule. The expectation is that you will be slain, right? Not the rule. I mean, not, the rule is that you will be slain, not the exception. Now let's go to the third seal. So when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. Or in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius? And do not harm the oil, <clears throat> excuse me, and the wine. Okay, so historically, not just even biblically, but scales represent a sense of justice. <clears throat> when justice is served, the scales are balanced. Whatever is, <clears throat> is due is what is paid, right? That's what a judge ultimately decides. Here's the crime, here's the punishment. Justice is balanced. <clears throat> Here, in an economic sense, what we're talking about is out-of-balance justice, out-of-balance scales. So just to kind of help you out with the imagery here. Um, so what, what we're seeing here is out of balance is a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So wheat was actually more expensive than barley. Wheat is the grain of choice for those who are in upper class. Barley was more of a lower class subsidy from the government. So once a week, seizure would issue in, in large communities. Once a week, they would hand out barley to the poor. It was, it was a very low-quality commodity, and it's what was given to the poor so that they uh, would have some sense of, of food to eat. Now, a quart was equal to one day of food for one person. So if you had one quart of wheat for a denarius, that's one day's worth of food. A denarius was one day's wages. So everything you made in a day was spent on, really, your food for the day. You didn't have any money left for anything else. It's an inflated Society, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200% inflation is represented in that. 
even at three quarts for denarius. That would represent what it would take to feed a household of four, two adults, two children, one day's wages. So everything that you earn in a day, you spent on your family just to eat. No, mo- no money for rent, no money for anything else. So you can see this highly inflated economy now. The scales are out of balance economically. Ultimately, what? As a result of the civil war or the, the slaying that has broken out on the face of the earth. And we see this right even today in the small pockets of war that what happens after war has right run its course is this economy that's just destroyed so why the wine and the oil not harmed it's a good question here's some possibilities one this could represent a contrast between the rich and the poor the poor didn't have access to olive oil and wine So maybe what's happening is that the poor are actually the ones in this particular moment who are receiving most of the suffering. Since the economy is out of balance, maybe the rich are still taking care of themselves, so the olive oil and the wine aren't being messed with, and they can afford to pay a denarius for a quart of wheat. So ultimately, maybe who's suffering here are simply the poor. And so it's kind of this idea of economic divide. That's one possibility. Another one is that God is putting a limit on the impact of famine. So maybe God himself is just saying, this is just as far as I'm allowing famine to go. And kind of connected to that is a third possibility that that ultimately what God is limiting is the time frame of the famine. Now think about it. If you destroy a crop of barley or wheat, it takes one year and you can completely 100% restore, right? Replow the fields, replant, rain comes back up. But if you destroy, destroy the olive grove, the olive trees, you're talking years to restore what has been lost. Same thing with the vineyards. You can't just plant grapes one year and harvest and make wine. There's years of building up. So potentially what God is doing is limiting the time frame of this famine by just saying those short-term crops are going to be destroyed. The economy is going to get flipped, but the famine is going to have a limit in terms of time frame. So there's three possibilities here of the imagery with the third seal. All right. Now, so much of what we're reading right now is rooted in the Old Testament. Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah. Just an example from uh, the prophet Ezekiel. This is in your Old Testament. Chapter 4, verse 16. Ezekiel is receiving this image of what will be a prophetic, um, a prophetic revelation. This is what is recorded in Ezekiel 4, 16. Moreover, he said to me, so this angelic being is speaking, Son, son of man, behold... I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight with anxiety, and they shall drink water measured in dismay. Now, let me help you out. This is a culture that doesn't buy food based on weight for the most part, and they certainly don't measure water. If they get thirsty, they go to the well and they draw water. Nobody is there with a meter right? Measuring how many gallons that like your house is, right? Measured by a meter, right? Nobody is measuring it for these people. That's, that's dramatically different economically from where these people are. So, so the idea that you, you have to, like the food is so expensive that you're weighing it. Again, back to the scales here. And so this, this imagery comes from Ezekiel way back in the Old Testament looking forward to the end. And now we have, again, it's reiterated with these unfolding of these seals, especially the third seal, reminding us of what God spoke through Ezekiel. There's going to come a day where Jerusalem's 
economy is going to get out of balance such that food and water, food and water is going to be very, very expensive. All right, verse 7, the fourth seal. And when he, let's just remind one another again, who's he? Jesus, the lamb who was slain. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. And we haven't had time to get into the imagery here um, so far on the colors of the horses. Um, But just a side note here, this pale um, is a yellowish greenish color. It was the description given to a corpse. Okay, just so you know. Now, that helps us make sense of what's about to be said. Come, and I look, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine. And we've already seen the sword and famine, right, with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Death and Hades. So the idea is that death comes riding on this pale horse, Hades behind, presumably on foot. And as death wields its sword and the people are slain on earth, Hades is coming behind collecting the corpses. That's the imagery we have here from the fourth seal. So we have death coming to the earth, a quarter of the earth by sword, Right? being released to conquer, turning into mass civil war, giving way to famine and economic injustice, and now pestilence or illness, disease, which that's a natural transition, isn't it? Right? You issue war, economies are destroyed, economy destroyed, leads to poverty, poverty leads to sickness, not enough medicine and nutrition to go around, ending in death. And now death comes through, wielding its sword, Hades following right behind. And then ultimately, the wild beasts of the earth getting involved. This idea that maybe um, the wild beasts are simply feeding on the corpses or you and I are so desperate if we are these people. We're going out into the wilderness. We're trying to find anything we can to eat. We're, We're competing with wild beasts for our existence. That's the fourth seal. Now, there's a dramatic shift now. So we had the four living creatures, the four horses, What we see here, whether this is Satan sending the horses or simply God removing a sense of peace and allowing our depravity to just run its course, whichever way you run it, it ends in the same place. With the fifth seal, look at what we have in verse 9. When he, being Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. These are the martyrs. These are those who have gone before us who have died for the sake of Jesus. First century, second century, third century, all the way up to the 21st century, there has not been a century that has not known martyrdom. Mathematically, there, I believe, have been more martyrs in this century already than all other centuries combined. I know if you add the 20th and 21st together for sure, but I think just this century alone, this is 2015, we're only 15 years into this century. Christians killed for following Jesus. And so so martyrdom here, so these are the martyrs, those who have died for that sake. Now here's what they do in verse 10, they cry out with a loud voice. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy 
and true. How long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So we know that, a couple things from this passage. One, that there is going to be a final number. And, and, until, and so this hasn't, if, if this hasn't happened yet, there's still a number of martyrdom to be completed. The number of martyrs to still come in. Those who still have yet to give their lives for following Jesus. There's a second thing that comes out of this passage that people will talk about is where do people go um, before the new heavens is, is created? So where are the people that you know and love who, have, who, are, who trusted Jesus with their lives but have, have died? Are they simply in a state of sleep right now? That's one view. Another view is that actually they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ right now, not in bodily form, but they are in a non-bodily form. Their souls are there at the, at the, at, in the presence of Jesus, awaiting, longing for his return to receive the resurrection of the new bodies, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Okay, so two different views here. Here we have the souls of the martyrs speaking, right, acknowledging what's going on on the earth, speaking and crying out. But then it gets confusing because they're told to rest a little longer. So are they literally told to go back to sleep or are they told to be patient and wait? So you can see those two different views here. Now we could get into a lot of other scriptures, right, to, to bring up those points. But here is an indication of souls of believers awake and cognitively recognizing what's going on on the earth, potentially right now, as I speak, watching this service and the things in our lives that they're waiting for, they're longing for, even though they're in the presence of Jesus, they're not fully satisfied. They're longing and waiting for the resurrection of the body in the new heaven and the new earth that is to come. And we won't go any further into that debate or discussion. We can pick that up off, off the record. Here we go, verse 12, the sixth seal. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Just had a, a blood moon recently. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by the gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place as a result of the earthquake, then the kings of earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave or free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? See this building? Now, there's a, there are a lot of references in your sermon notes of other places in the Bible pointing towards this imagery, that this is the way it's going to look and feel and sound, and this is the experience. Let me just pull out a few examples here. Matthew 24, verse 29. 
immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its life, and the stars will fall from heaven. Does that sound familiar? This is Jesus speaking, Matthew 24. Sounds like they're talking about the same thing here. Then he goes on, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. This amazing earthquake that levels mountains. Then will appear in heaven a sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of the Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. The trumpets are getting ready to sound in Revelation. With a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Sounds like John is seeing what Jesus was describing in his, his earthly experience back here on earth is recorded in Matthew 24. The prophet Isaiah prophesying about the end describes in similar words. Listen to the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. Isaiah 2 verse 20, in that day, when you hear that in that day, that's a forward movement. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats. So there's this imagery of those creatures that live in the caves, like taking the best of what we've acquired for ourselves and just, just chunking it, letting it lie around. It no longer has a value. Giving it to the moles and the bats to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from Why? From before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. That isn't the God I got taught about in Sunday school as a kid. We were talking about this in life group uh, last night about the imagery just from chapter 4 and 5 of the throne room. And one of the, the, the folks in our life group just made a comment, like, because I was asking them, you know, well, how, how does this, what do you see when you hear this description? And this person said, I, it kind of makes me scared. And, and, and from there asking, is that, is that a good thing that I feel somewhat scared? And so we talked for a few minutes about the goodness of fear when it's in, in a sense of reverence of something that is powerful, when you're awestruck. See, the, the wording from Isaiah here, that this, this, this idea is that the terror is from the splendor and the majesty. You see, we throw those, those words around so flippantly. We say awesome and apply it to soccer games and home runs and, and right? And, oh, well, how was your day? My day was awesome. And, and the, the idea of awesome is that, right, there's a sense of being awestruck, struck with a sense of terror and fear in a way that your, your attention is captivated. Now, we've talked also in our life group about how when angels appear, that's the thing that happens, and it's just an angelic being. It's not the son of God. Just with an, And so with every angel appearance, almost every angel appearance in Scripture, what's the first words out of their mouth? Don't be scared. Fear not. Why? Because there's a sense of terror being in the splendor of an angelic being. The Son of Man, chapter 1 of Revelation. John himself, this is a man who walked with Jesus as intimate as any man here on earth. And in chapter 1, he's in the image of Jesus and he says, I fell on my knees as though I were dead, struck with awe, terror, fear in in the revealed presence and splendor of the majestic king. Remember how his glory was described last week? Like thunder 
and lightning. Here it's being represented with an earthquake. This sense of awe that comes with the final revealing of the Son of God. Joel 2.31 says, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Yeah. See, that's not always the God we portray in Sunday school, right? This is the same God that flooded the earth in Genesis and spared one man and his family. And it wasn't the cartoon depiction that we put on, like, preschool, uh, you know, walls, and we paint all these caricatures, and everybody looks like they're having a great day, and we're just out on the boat, and we're fishing, and it's awesome. we got all these animals for pets, and isn't dad great? He listened to God, and, like, that was death and destruction. People died. A lot of people died in the flood. And so here's what we have. This is what we see in Christ. I love this, this beautiful emblem of suffering and shame. You see two things at the cross. You see the merging of God's wrath and justice and his grace and mercy in one place in one moment in time. Is he a God of wrath against his enemies? Yes. There will be a day when he says to his enemies, as we, from the famous Gladiator movie, a time of honoring yourself will soon come to an end. I have the final word. And, and God will bring wrath against his enemies. We're going to see that unfold. But he's also a God of mercy and grace. And he says to those whom he created, I love you and I want to have a relationship with you. That's the point of the cross. The wrath that you deserve, I'm going to pour it out essentially on my son. He's willing to do it. It's okay because he's God. He's going to die on your behalf, but he's going to resurrect. We can handle this. But just understand what you see on the cross is what you've earned. Talk about out-of-balance scales. And God pours out his wrath on his son. Why? That through believing in him, we might receive grace and mercy. You see how those two collide at the cross? It's both brutal and glorious. And here we have the unveiled splendor of the sovereign God of the universe and everything and everyone must take notice. We have no option at this point. Today you have an option. We sang some songs earlier. You had an option whether or not to engage your heart and mind and declare the goodness of our king in worship. You had that option. There will come a day the option is no longer on the table. It will be, it will be commanded of us. It will be commanded of us. You won't be bored, I promise. Now, here's what happens in Revelation to help you out. You get these literary breaks. Let me explain. Your Bible is written in words, which means that these are words collected together in phrases and statements with meaning, and it's literature. You have all kinds of different genres represented in the Bible. Sometimes we don't think about this, but a lot of the Old Testament is poetic. And we look at, we look at stories like Job, and we try to read it like just a narrative. It's not, it's not fully a narrative. It's, it's poetic. And so it's, it helps to know what's going on, right, literarily, so to speak, in the Bible. So here's what's happened in Revelation. You get these literary breaks. That's what, that's what chapter 7 is. Okay, So we're not going to go through 7. It's beautiful and it's helpful and it's needed. So it seems like as God is unfolding this to John, there's some breaks where he stops to describe what's happening and what, what he's seeing apart from the events unfolding. 
Because we don't get to the seventh seal until chapter 8. So chapter 7, read it. You need some help on it. Let's talk throughout the week. Uh, But let's move forward to chapter 8 and pick up the seventh seal together. So in chapter 8, we get the opening of the seventh seal. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. It's like a pin drop moment. Everybody's on the edge of their seats. It's like that moment, I don't know if you've ever been in a court, a real court setting. The judge enters, all of a sudden all the chit-chat stops. All rise. Everybody has, right, nobody's speaking, cell phone better be turned off. This is not the moment you want to have an oops. Right? Just at the presence of an earthly judge, that takes place. Now, this is what we have happening here. The judge has entered the courtroom, and everybody falls silent. There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. So already being queued up are the seven trumpets as the seventh seal unfolds. You see where you could have the telescopic view Or it could be starting that cycle all over again because the imagery repeats itself. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, it rose before God from the hand of the angel. Verse 5, and then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. There's that storm theophany again. Either another episode of that happening or we're circling back around to what we saw in chapter 4 and 5 and we're going to run through those seven episodes again, whichever perspective you take. And, And to me, it doesn't matter. Why? Because they all end at the same place. Right, they all end at the same place. So whether you say it's seven seals, then it's seven trumpets, then it's seven bowls, we're all ramping up to the same event. Or you say that the seven trumpets are really just a, a reiteration of the seven seals and the seven bowls are just a reiteration again of the seven trumpets, they all end at this point in time. When human history finds its end and along with it, everything that took place in the fall. And the last enemy of God to die will be death itself. And that's when we know it's done. Now, what I want to do is just take a minute to look at Mark 13 with you. So, Mark 13, Jesus is teaching of the signs that will accompany the close of the age, human history. So, essentially, what Jesus is talking about Uh, We're going to see, he's describing what we just read in the seven seals. Mark 13. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. Jesus begins with, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Why why do we need to be aware of that? Verse 6. Many will come in my name saying, What? I'm he. Now here's the thing. If anybody's read, This description, you're going to have a hard time pulling that one off, right? But many will come, false prophets saying what? I'm he. We've seen many false prophets do that here on earth, haven't we, in our history? I'm he. 
and, and I just want to giggle, right? I don't hear thunder. I certainly don't see lightning. I, I must have missed the horses. Come on, man. Get off the stage. You're a joke, right? You can't miss that. But still, many will come and say that. They are he, and they'll try to lead us astray. And you will, listen to this, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. So this is what we read about this releasing of conquering all around the earth and civil war breaking out among mankind. Jesus said, you're going you're gonna to hear about wars and rumors of wars, and that's going to seem like it's happening all over the place, but the end is not yet. Verse 8, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of what? The birth pains. So Jesus is describing the unfolding of what we looked at in the seven seals and potentially seven trumpets and the seven bowls as the beginning of birth pains. We read about that last week in Romans 8, how creation itself is groaning like, like a woman with birth pains right now. Longing for what? The sons of God to be revealed. And Jesus said, that's the beginning of the birth pains. Rumors of war, famine. These are but the beginning of the end. We're going to skip down to verse 21. Again, picking up on this idea that there will be false prophets, verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and they'll even perform signs and wonders to lead astray. If possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So Jesus is calling us as his followers to be on guard, to stay awake, to be watchful. Verse 24. But in those days... After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, we read that in Revelation. We read that in the Old Testament. The same imagery, and now we see it at Jesus himself saying, this is what it's going to be like. It's like stars are like falling from the sky like leaves falling from a tree. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And then he, he teaches us a lesson. So this is for us right now. What we're about to read is, okay, what do we do with all this information? Right? What do we do? We go build bunkers under our homes and like just sell out and just, right, and quit going to work and we just... Wait, that's what the Thessalonians were doing. Paul writes to them, he says, hey, don't give up. It's not quite yet. Be prepared, but still be engaged in today. And here's what Jesus says to us. He tells us to learn a lesson from the fig tree. He's going to talk about how the fig tree goes in and out of season. And you know the seasons are changing by watching the fig tree. So from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches, its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, so it's the budding of spring, as soon as that happens, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, what things? Everything we just read about from Revelation 6 into 8, from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from Zechariah, 
from Jesus himself. When you see these things take place, it's like, it's like a, a tender branch on a fig tree in the spring beginning to bud. And you can't quite tell, is that a leaf or not? I don't know, but you can see the buds beginning to come out. And you know what? The seasons are changing. It might not, not even be fully warm yet, right? But you know it's on the way. Summer is on the way. Truly I say to you, when he says, when these things take place, this is the end of verse 29, you know that he is near at the very gates. Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now we read this two ways. On one hand we read that and we go, wait a second, that generation is long gone. What we're understanding is that he's talking about the generation that sees the signs. That's how close it's going to be. Right? So when you see the signs, don't just think, well, this is what my grandkids are going to have to deal with. The generation that sees the signs will not pass away before he returns. That's what he says. But concerning the day, verse 32, or the, at that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So what do we do with this information? Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. I try to imagine what the people were doing in Jerusalem that Sunday that Jesus rides into town. Right? I, I, I would just be willing to believe. It was Sunday, which was the beginning of the week. Right? Sabbath was Saturday for them. Um, I would think that they were potentially going on about their week, going to work. Right? They may have heard rumors that Jesus may have been coming soon. There may have been a sense of, hey, I hear Jesus is coming to visit Jerusalem soon. Yeah, when he does, I'm going to go listen to him teach. I know last time he was here and there some rumors kind of flickering around, but, but right, they didn't have Facebook and Twitter. There was no, right, Jesus tweeting, hey, we're rolling into town, hashtag, get out the palm branches. So, so Jesus comes into town. So something about the hearts of the people was ready for his return. Again, just a, a foreshadowing of where our hearts should be. Be on guard, stay awake. Be excited, be expectant, so that when we see the one coming, riding on the clouds in power and glory, you won't mistake him. He won't be like the false prophet who gets a little airtime and puts up a billboard or two and then he's gone tomorrow. You will not mistake the return of the king. Let your hearts be ready for that moment so that when he does, we're ready to proclaim together, Hosanna, there he is. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest that's our king. And my heart is struck with awe and terror and fear and overwhelmed with love and joy and peace and grace all at the same time because I know him. I've never seen him like that before, but I know him and he knows me. All right. We're going to land today and, uh, and we're going to pick this back up next week with the seven trumpets. And in between, I hope you're studying and reading and, 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 and just pursuing the heart of God and revelation. I hope you'll read chapter 7 on your own. Uh, we won't go over it in here. We'll get to chapter 8, and we'll begin to move forward a couple of chapters at a time, uh, ending this series right before Christmas. But here's where I want to end today, right? I want to go back to what we talked about, the cross, the merging of God's justice, which brings wrath, and his love, which brings grace. And I just wonder where, where you are today. I just wonder. Have you come to that place in your life where when the king returns, you'll know him and better yet, he knows you? 
Have you come to that place where you've began an intimate relationship with him? Because see, right now you have a choice. We do, you have a choice. There'll be a day where you don't have a choice anymore. And so I want you to know that Jesus has extended an invitation to you that you would come by faith alone. And just like the martyrs we read about were clothed in white robes, Jesus wants to clothe you in a white robe today. Today. So that you will be prepared. You will be excited. Your heart will be full of joy at his return. And you can have it today. You see, when we talk about praying in the church, what we're talking about is speaking to this God right now. You don't have to wait. You can talk to him right now. Some of you have already done that in the service today. And I want you to know that the king has extended an invitation to you and he's invited you to the table and said, come and dine with me. Come be a part of my family by faith. Simply by believing on Jesus that he died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the grave, conquering death. By believing that, you can have salvation today. I'm gonna pray for us now and I'm gonna invite our um, worship team to come forward. Um, prayer partners, as always, will be um, in the back. Um, I know some of you may not even be aware that we have prayer partners. We have folks in our service uh, who are here today, and their primary uh, objective is to pray for you. And whether you come back there or not, they're going to start praying for you. Um, but if there's something specific you want them to pray over in your life, or you want to learn more about becoming a Christian, please, please, as we sing these songs, would you stand and just make your way back to one of our prayer partners and let them know how they could pray for you? Well, let's pray together as we prepare to stand and sing. Matter of fact, I'm just going to invite you to stand, if you will. Let's stand together and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so um, humbled and honored and full of joy, knowing that in the last days, while there will be plenty of things that God, potentially strike our hearts with fear. God, we can rest in knowing that we're on your side. And as you come to conquer your enemies, Lord Jesus, today in this moment we can know we're not your enemies. As we've read in Revelation 2 and 3 that you're inviting us to be co-conquerors with you. Simply by faith we would come and trust trust in the cross, trust in your grace and love and forgiveness. So I pray right now for every person in the room that we would move into a time right now of true worship. That we wouldn't wait until that day where we don't have a choice, but today we would engage in your presence. Today we would give you our adoration, our affection, our attention. Today we would choose to worship you and lift your name on high. turn our eyes now off of the things of this earth and off of ourselves and onto you. We pray this in your powerful name.